Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Turn with me to Acts 17. Acts 17. There are many ways Christians respond to the world around them. But you could generally categorize them in one of three three ways that Christians react to the world. Some Christians cower from the world. They hide in their little bubbles and bunkers and try not to have any interaction with the unsaved world. They may not be Amish, but they are Amish-like in that respect. Other Christians conform to the world around them. They are heavily influenced in their thinking. We talked about worldviews last week. In how they think and and how they live. And quite frankly, just by looking at their life, you would not be able to tell that they were a Christian. Oh, maybe they spend an hour or two at church every month or two. But really, their life is not markedly different than the world around them. But what God is looking for is Christians that will confront the culture. Counterculture Christians who will confront it not in anger and not in hate, but with the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. D.L. Moody, the famous preacher and evangelist once talked to a woman who said, I don't like the way you do evangelism. I don't like your method. And Moody said to her, well, I don't really like mine all that much either. What's yours? She said, well, I don't have one. He said, well, then I like mine better than yours. A lot of times we're very critical of those who go into the world with the love of Christ and share the gospel of Christ, and certainly, again, we don't want to be compromising in our faith as we try to reach the culture for Christ, but I think all of us, if we were to be honest with ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, we would have to say that we could do a better job of taking Christ to our Christless culture. And last week, uh, we started to look at this concept, but It's not new to Paul, and it's not new to the apostles. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, said this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good news or good tidings. Do you know what we call the good news today? We call it the gospel. That's what gospel means. It means good news. Literally, he is prophetically saying, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth the gospel, that publisheth peace. See, the message of the gospel is both good news and bad news. The bad news is that we're all sinners. And because of our sin, we're all separated from a righteous and holy God. And because of our sin, we're all under God's wrath. And If we don't deal with that reality, we will spend eternity separated forever from God, experiencing God's wrath. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, we call Jesus the Prince of Peace because he has made a way for us to have peace with God through his own broken 
body, his own shed blood, and through his victorious resurrection. We bring good tidings of good. We publish salvation. We saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. The apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. But when we give that answer, we're to give it with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good lifestyle or conversation in Christ. God doesn't call all of us to go across the ocean, to go around the world on a missions trip or as missionaries in terms of an international missionary. But God calls all of us to be missionaries where we are and to be ready at any time to give a, a reason for the, the hope that is within us. We have hope if we have peace with God. And we have peace with God if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. We live in a generation that is screaming for hope and screaming for peace. Young men, young women who are not even at peace in their own bodies. They are at war with themselves. And as Howard Hendricks once said, in the midst of a generation screaming for answers, Christians are stuttering. We need to make sure that we are able to clearly communicate the hope that is inside of us. And so with that in mind, we have been studying together Acts chapter 17 and looking at the example of the Apostle Paul and how to confront a Christless culture with the truth of the gospel. Now, last week we saw four things, and let me just quickly review them with you this morning. Four things about our message. We confront the culture, not with pitchforks, but with a message of hope and a message of peace and a message of grace and a message of love. And whatever else our message is, it must first and foremost be grounded in Scripture. We saw Acts chapter 17, verse 2. Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Verse 11 says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Paul's manner was to preach the gospel from the scriptures. And remember, the New Testament had not been written yet. So he is not using the book of Romans, because he hadn't written it yet. He is using Genesis through Malachi. He is using what we now call the Old Testament to preach the gospel. See, it's the Old Testament that says that the Messiah would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace would be upon him and by his stripes we would be healed. The gospel is all over the Old Testament. The Messiah who would come and die, who would be cut off, as Daniel 9 says, but not for himself, not because of his own sin, that he would give himself and that he would live again. David prophesied that when Messiah died, that his body would not see corruption, that he would live again. And so we must be grounded in the scriptures as we approach the culture. We must, number two, be heartfelt and spirit motivated as we approach the culture. Remember, Paul lands in Athens as really not a missionary, but as a vacationer. He is there to get a break because of all of the danger he has been surrounded with, because of all of the threats against his life, and because of all of the turmoil that preaching the gospel has caused in Philippi and in Thessalonica and in Berea. And now he has been uh, kind of uh, snatched away to Athens to kind of regroup, and yet while he was in Athens, we see in verse 16, Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy, but his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given 
to idolatry. Christian, our spirit should be stirred by the sin around us. Otherwise, whatever we say will just be a, a, a message of hypocrisy. If we don't feel the conviction of sin ourselves. But sadly today, it seems like if social media is any judge that Christians are more offended by preaching against sin than by the sin itself. And it's sad that so many Christians think that they are more spiritual because they're not bothered by sin anymore. The Apostle Paul was bothered by sin. And he didn't respond in some kind of condescending, hateful way. He didn't respond in a holier-than-thou way. But he saw the sin as a crisis in the lives of these people who needed Christ. And his response provoked in his spirit by the Holy Spirit as he saw this sin was to get them the gospel. Number three, we saw that in what we preach, we must keep Jesus and the resurrection central. Verse 17, therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. And there were certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics who encountered him and some said, what will this babbler say? They just mocked him openly. And others said, well, he seems to be a, a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them what? Jesus and the resurrection. See, when we're, de when we're debating somebody, yes, we need to be able to, to, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And yes, we, we talk about things other than the resurrection, but we have to bring it back to the resurrection because that's what makes all of this true. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if Christ be not raised, you're still dead in your sins. If Christ is still in the tomb, go home, folks. What are you wasting your Sunday for? But the reality is Jesus Christ is alive. And because he's alive, we can believe what he said. Because he said, I will die, I will lay down my life and pick it up again. You say, well, I don't believe Jesus rose from the dead. Then you haven't studied it. Then you haven't honestly examined the evidence. You've just retweeted what some uh, agnostic podcaster said or, or some comedian said in jest to get a laugh from a crowd. Over 500 witnesses on one occasion, not to mention the fact that the apostles who did not believe in Jesus, when they saw the resurrection, they were transformed in their attitude and were willing to die brutal, martyred deaths when all they had to do was say Jesus didn't really rise. But they said, no, I believe it. I know it. I've seen him. I've touched him. He's alive. He's alive. And I will lay down my life. Because I know he's alive. The evidence, the external evidence, even going outside of the scriptures, the external evidence is overwhelming. Oh, sure, there are still a few crackpot intellectuals who deny outright the existence of a historical Jesus Christ. But even in secular scholarship, most secular scholarship today believe that the apostles believed that Jesus was alive that they had encountered the resurrected Christ. And there's been, a, there's been a transformation in the scholarship on the resurrection, even from those who are not believers in Christ, because of the overwhelming evidence for a risen Jesus. You have to keep Jesus in the resurrection central, and you have to recognize, as we said last week, that you will be mocked if you say that. You will be mocked by the intellectuals of our day. Now remember... The Epicureans, they were the pleasure seekers. They didn't believe in life after death. So they just said, live for today. Live for as much pleasure as you can get and avoid as much pain you can get. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were pantheists. They believed that, that God is in everything and everything is God. And so we got to be we got to make this world a better place. They believed that the purpose of life was was just to be as virtuous as you could be. They were the first century virtue signalers. Right? If they had social media today, they'd be, they'd, they'd be changing their profile picture every, uh, every week to put the frame on there to show everybody how virtuous they are. And I'm, I'm not trying to offend you unless you do that all the time for everything. I'm not saying you should never do that. But if you're doing it all the time for everything, you have to really ask, why am I 
doing, who am, who am I trying to please? Who am I trying to let know? See, it really hasn't changed much. People today are either still chasing pleasure or self-righteousness. They're either hedonists who are trying to get as much pleasure as they can for whatever they can get, or they're just trying to be better than everybody else and trying to let everybody else know how virtuous they are. It hasn't really changed. And so just as Paul was mocked, we will be mocked by those same people. Now, let's get a little more specific in terms of how we confront a Christless culture. Look with me in verse 22. Paul has been called to Mars Hill to present his theories, they thought, his strange new God to the Athenians. And so in verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too, the King James says, superstitious. Some of you may have a translation that says very religious, but neither of those really gets at the heart of what Paul says in the Greek. See, Paul uses in the Greek a word, literally one word, dies demonesteros. Dies demonesteros. And I want to highlight for you the Greek word in the middle of that bigger word. Do you recognize? Can you read it? It's small print. It's the Greek word daemon. Demon. Demon. What Paul literally says to them is, I see that you guys are worshiping lots of demons. Do you know that in the Corinthian letter, 1 Corinthians, in fact, we, we talk about this every time we have the Lord's table, every time we observe communion. Paul tells the Corinthians, don't get mixed up. Every time someone goes to an attempt, a temple for Athena, Zeus, Diana, Apollo, Poseidon, they are worshiping real demons. The stories are embellished, fabricated, of course. The mythology is myth in the sense of being fiction. But the power behind the worship, the power behind all, uh, imagine if you will, all of those temples that Paul, as he stood on the hill in Athens, all of those temples that Paul could see around the city. And Paul says to them, as I see all your altars and all your temples, I recognize that you are worshiping demons. Yeah, I, I want to remind you, church, that you are in a spiritual war. And your message must target the true enemy. Paul said in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle with principalities and powers. The rulers of the darkness of this world. Spiritual wickedness in high places. By the way, Moses said the same thing in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The false gods are demons. The psalmist said it in Psalm 106, verse 37. The false gods are demons. And Paul, again, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 18 through 22. Now, if you will grasp hold of that truth out of the mouth of three witnesses, prophetic witnesses, that will change the way you read your Old Testament. That'll change the way you read your Old Testament. When you read about Baal and Asherah, when you read about Bel and Marduk and Moloch and all of the pagan gods that Israel was fornicating with spiritually, it'll change the way that you look at mythology. It'll change the way that you look at the world we live in today. There are very real demonic powers behind the worship of false gods, the gods of the Hindus, the demon Allah, the gods of paganism are very real demonic powers, and you need to make sure that you understand that your message is targeting the true enemy. The person that we are witnessing to is not the enemy. They are enslaved to the enemy. 
they may be serving willingly the enemy, but they are not the enemy. They're not our, our, our combatant. And so, church, we have to be sober, we have to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And you need, need to make sure that you are using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and that you're directing it at demonic deception and lies. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 said that the Spirit expressly saith, now, we know that everything that is written is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Everything written in the Scriptures is inspired by the Holy Spirit. But every now and again, God underlines it himself. Some of you like to underline your Bible. I like to underline my Bible. Sometimes the Holy Spirit underlines for us. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4 is one of those places. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceitful spirits, and doctrines of demons. This is happening in the church in America and around the world today. And so our target must be the true enemy. Our message must target that enemy. Number six, notice what Paul says in verse 23 again. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I watched you worshiping, and I found an altar, which means he was looking for it, he found an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, when Paul found an altar to the unknown God, what he recognized was not a way to accommodate the gospel to the culture. That was not what he was doing. He was recognizing the fear and the spiritual bondage that the Athenians felt towards the gods. They were so afraid of offending the gods and displeasing the gods because the gods could curse you with a bad harvest or the, God, the gods could uh, cause you to have a disastrous trip on the ocean. If you offended Poseidon before you took a boat ride, you might be in big trouble. They lived in constant fear of displeasing the gods. And so because of this fear, they thought, what if we missed one? What if there's a God out there and we forgot to honor them? We better put up an altar just to the unknown God as a failsafe, as a catch-all, so that we don't accidentally displease a God that we don't know about. See, what Paul was doing was he was looking for a spiritual need as a way to connect the peace and hope of the gospel with the Athenians. Our message must also address spiritual needs, the ones that we know about. We need to be looking for the spiritual needs. We need to see people as people and not as potential notches on our evangelism belt. That I get to say, I led so and so, I, I led another one, I led another one. I remember a teacher I had at Liberty was sharing about when he was a youth pastor. I was studying to be a youth pastor at the time, and he was sharing a story about when he was a youth pastor and how uh, he would pick up this uh, one boy who was having family issues, and he would uh, take him to soccer practice and uh, pick him up and take him to soccer practice. And he said, and I used to, every time I pick him up and I try to share the gospel with him, I try to share the gospel with him, and he just would sit there and not listen and fold his arms and not care. And I was just, I was just so, I just wanted him to get saved. But he said he said something to me one day in the car that just broke my heart. As I'm trying to share the gospel with him, he interrupted me. He said, all you care about is my soul. You don't care if the rest of me goes to hell or not. And he thought about it. It broke his heart. See, we have to see people as people. We have to see people as having real need, as having, as having real crisis. Sin is self-destructive. The reason we preach against sin is not because we're not sinners. Listen, I am a saved sinner. I am a saved sinner here today. I am a forgiven sinner. Praise God. I am not here today because of how great I am and how righteous I am. Everything good in me is Jesus Christ. Everything good in me has been accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit with a lot of pain and suffering in the discipling process on my part. He brought the, he brought the, the discipling and, and I provided the pain 
as I tried to learn from, from my mistakes. But we have to see people as having needs. Paul's looking for their need. And he says, I see the need, and I want you to know that, that there's a God who can meet that need. There's a God who can bring healing to that need so that you don't have to live in fear of his wrath anymore. We have to communicate looking for people's spiritual needs. This is what Jesus did at a well in Samaria. Remember, Jesus was at a well. The disciples are going to buy food, and Jesus is there because he had an appointment with a woman who had been divorced multiple times. She was living with the man, living an immoral life, and he cared about her, and he cared about her need. And he said, I have, I have water that if you'll drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. Of course, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. He was talking about spiritual water. She said, give me some of that water. And then immediately he began to talk to her about her needs, about her heart. And that's how he reached her. And sometimes when we just treat people as, as an audience and not as individual people, we miss the mark that the message is targeting, which is their heart. Our message must speak to people's spiritual needs. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. That's me. That's me. And Jesus said, I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. See, I preach Jesus because he gives peace. I, I preach Jesus because he brings forgiveness. I preach Jesus because he gives us victory over death. Because he's resurrected. And so I don't have to, in Christ, I don't have to fear death. I don't look forward to it. Because it might be painful, I don't know. I've seen, people, I've seen some people go out in some pretty intense pain. I don't want to go out that way. I've seen other people like my grandfather. He was, sitting at, he was sitting at breakfast with my uncle. And he looked up and he went. And he was gone. And I think he saw an angel come to take him. That's what we believe. That was the expression on his face. That's how I want to go. Not today. Not today, Lord. But when, you're, when my time has come, that's how I want to go. Actually, we, we all, we've already decided we want to go up in the rapture. That's our prayer, but we'll see. Our message must target the true enemy. Our message must address known spiritual needs. And here's number seven. I need to remember this, but this isn't just for preachers. This is for all of us. Our message must communicate to be understood. Our message must communicate to be understood. Listen to how Paul accommodates the hearer, not the message. Not the, he doesn't change the message. He doesn't take things out of the gospel to make it more palatable or acceptable. But he accommodates the hearer. And so he, again, verse 23, he says, listen, remember that unknown God you've been worshiping? And then later on in verse 28, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said. He knew what their culture was. He knew what their beliefs were. And he found some touch points that he could use, some connections, some bridges that he could use over which to take the gospel. We have to understand the language of the culture. Even if they're using words wrongly, we still have to understand what they mean by it. And sometimes we don't communicate very well with one another because we're just speaking to be heard and not to be understood. And we're just waiting for them to start to stop talking so we can start talking again. That's not communication. What the world needs is not another speech. What the world needs is communication, God's truth to their heart and to their need. Our message must communicate to be understood. There's a quote that's often attributed to George Bernard Shaw. It's actually the first um, known record of it written is uh, by William H. Witt. He was a journalist and best-selling author. And in 1950, September of 1950, Fortune Magazine, let me get this right. Fortune Magazine, September 1950, an article entitled, Is Anybody Listening? He said this, quote, 
the great enemy of communication, we find, is the illusion of it. We've talked enough, but we have not listened. And by not listening, we have failed to concede the immense complexity of our society and thus the great gaps between ourselves and those with whom we seek understanding. Or, as it is more commonly paraphrased, the biggest problem with communication is the assumption it has already taken place. See, we say it and we think we've been understood. Elijah talks, and then he asks me a question. And then I have to hit the pause button, and I think, what did he just ask me? And sometimes I give that, you know, yeah, bud, yeah, yeah. And then he'll say, Are, did you just say that such and such? And then he repeats the question. I'm like, no, 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 the answer is not yes. The answer is no. <laughs> sometimes we do that. That's how we talk. We just talk to talk, not to be understood. Paul wanted to speak in their language, not to change the message, but to Changed the way that the understeer, uh, that the uh, hearer was able to understand it. Now, another part of this is the fact that Satan is a master counterfeiter. And he will always twist the truth. But the other side of that coin is there are true things there that you can use as connection points, as bridges. So there are things in Islam that are true. And if you have somebody that you know who is a friend who is Muslim and you're having a, a conversation about why you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you can use some of what they believe that is true. If you're speaking with somebody who says they believe the Bible but they are part of a cult, you can keep taking things back to what they do believe and, and the things that are true as a way to bridge that gap between you. So our message must communicate to be understood. Number our message must highlight the essential truths concerning who God is and what he's like. Not who I think God is, not what I wish he was like. But we are essentially not the message. He is the message. And we have to take it back to who God has revealed himself to be. How God has displayed his heart to us. Not what we think or wish, but who he really is. Don't you hate it when somebody tells somebody else something about you that's not true? Well, I thought you, I thought you did say that. Or I thought you did like that. No, that's not, I didn't say that. I, don't, I do not like food with onions in it. If somebody tells you that Pastor DJ likes onions in his food, I promise you that person is a liar. And it's probably trying to trick me into eating something. Don't think about it, Vicky. But you don't want people to say things about you that aren't true. You think God wants people to say things about him that aren't true? God has revealed himself in history and has revealed himself in his word. And so what does Paul do? Let me just give you, I'm not going to unpack any of these things for sake of time this morning. But let me just give you these 10 key truths about the one true God. Let's read these verses together and, and highlight these uh, as we go. Verse 24, God hath, that hath made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. See, we serve a creator God. And because he is creator, he is also Lord. And because he is creator and Lord, that means he gets to define how things should work. I don't get to define how I work. I don't get to, I don't get to make exceptions for me or anybody else. He is the creator. He is the Lord. Number three and four, verse 25. Neither is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He is transcendent and he is all-powerful God is not waiting around wringing his hands hoping that you will do things for him God can get it done you remember what Mordecai told Esther Esther you better stand up you better think that you're in danger just like everybody else don't think just because you're in the palace that you're going to be free from the king's command but if you don't stand up God will raise somebody else up but let it be you 
Let it, God doesn't need you. You get to serve God. We get to serve God, right, Butch? We get to serve God. If you don't stand up, God will use somebody else. But God does not need us. He is transcendent. God did not create us so that he could have relationship with somebody. Some people teach that. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has perfect oneness and perfect fellowship in himself. One God, three persons. He is relationship himself. He did not create us because he needed to create us. Because he needed us to give him anything. He's transcendent. He's all-powerful, the source of life. He doesn't need us in any way. That's what makes it so amazing. The psalmist says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What, what, why? God, you don't even need us. And yet you love us. Look at verse 26. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over his creation. He's sovereign over mankind. He's sovereign over time and space and all the nations in the world. And nothing wrong with ethnicities. There's going to be ethnicity in heaven. We studied that in Revelation. There's going to be nations in heaven. There's going to be ethnicity in heaven. God is a God of diversity, but we're all one blood. One blood. Don't judge somebody because of their outward appearance, because they have more or less melanin than you did than you do. Lots of people have more melanin than me. But don't judge somebody because even if there were a lot of people with less melanin than me, don't judge somebody. We're one blood. One blood. God loves the world. Okay? We're all one family. We're all descendants of Noah, all of us. And so whether it's Shem, Ham, Japheth, we're all descendants of Noah. He is sovereign over his creation. He is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over time and space. That means that God puts you right where you are, right at the right time. You are created for such a time as this. Esther was created for such a time as this, for her situation, for her people and her time. You are created for such a time as this, for your family and for your nation and for your generation. God has sovereignly placed you where you need to be to be who he created you to be. Look at verses 27 and 28, that they should seek the Lord. Why did God do this? Why did God create the nations? Why did God spread everybody out? Why did God put you where you are at the time you are? That they, men, should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of our own of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Listen, friend, we serve a God and we preach a God who is personal and present. And you know what God wants from you? He wants your pursuit and your repentance. He wants your heart. He created your heart. But he's not going to take it by, from you by force. Now, I know there are some who say, well, yeah, but we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. And a corpse can't hear anything. And a corpse can't respond. Well, we preached this before. Let me preach it again. If you're saying that being spiritually dead means you can't accept salvation, that also means you can't reject it either. If that's what dead means, that's not what dead means. Dead means separated. It means separated from God. And God says... That I have spoken in such a way, not because of who you are dead in your trespasses, but because of who I am. I have spoken in such a way that, yes, you can respond. That's why you are responsible, because God has made each and every one of us response-able. You're response-able. That's why God holds us responsible. And it's God's heart. God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. The gospel is for everybody. It's not just for some chosen few. Jesus Christ died for the sins of all. And John puts it real clear in 1 John 2, 2, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. You know, nobody goes to hell because they're a sinner. Jesus said that. Jesus said, he that 
believes is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. No one in hell has to be there. And if that's where you're headed because you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you don't have to be there either. Jesus paid for your sin. Your sin's paid for, but you've got to accept the payment. You've got to admit that you're a sinner who needs God's forgiveness. You've got to admit, the Bible word for that is repent. Luke chapter 24, hours after his resurrection, hours after his resurrection, Jesus said to the disciples that you're going to go, guys, and you're going to preach repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's our message. If we're not preaching that, we're not preaching the message that the resurrected Jesus told us to preach. Repentance, forgiveness of sins. If you will admit that you're a sinner and that there's one Savior, not you, but one Savior, Jesus Christ, he died for you, he rose again, and you will turn from your sin and turn to him and you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. And you can do that today. I would plead with you to do that today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not even guaranteed tonight. God desires your heart. He is personal and he is present and he is He's the one holding us all together. Every breath that you breathe today is a gift from God. Every single breath is a gift. Every single one. And it's God's air that you're breathing. I know the government wants to tax it. They think it's theirs. They think the water's there. They think the air's theirs. They're going to find out if they don't know already when they get there. When they find out before the judge who's really running the universe. Who's really in control. See, verses 29 through 31 make it real clear. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we're all created by God. All of us. God created. We are each of us fearfully and wonderfully made. You are not your mama's decision. You are God's decision. And that's why we defend the rights of the unborn. Because each one is a unique creation of God. And each one is an image bearer of God. And we have a responsibility to defend the defenseless and to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. He says this. We are the offspring of God, and so we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in which, we will in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. We preach the Savior and the judge. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, but he's also the judge of the world. And he commands, God commands us that we repent and get right with Jesus before we stand before him, because when you stand before him, it will be too late. It will be too late in that moment. No one in hell has to be there. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Judge. Is Judge. But here's what I want to end with this part with. Verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day and he hath given assurance to all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. See, I'm preaching a risen Savior. You can't go find the body of Jesus. Every other religious figure in the world, dead or getting old, dead, dead or dying, but not Jesus. Jesus is alive. That's what makes this faith different than every other religion in the world, because we have a resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. His resurrection is the foundation of our hope. It needs to be a foundation of our message. And I can't tell you what I, Gigi will tell you, I get so irritated when I hear a preacher share the gospel and they leave out the resurrection. They talk about the cross, talk about the blood. If he's not alive, none of that does us any good. He was raised for our justification, the Bible says. You're not justified if he's still dead. You're still in your sins. We serve a risen Savior. We need to preach a risen Savior. But what happens when we do? Look at verses 32 and 34 as we close. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, 
and said, we will hear thee again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Paul, uh, Luke writing says, hey, you guys, some of you guys know who these people are. These must have been prominent people in the city of Athens at the time. You guys, you guys heard about these people getting saved, but most people didn't. What did they do? Some of them mocked, and some of them said, hey, we'll, we'll have you back. We'll have you back and speak. You're very entertaining. We're entertained by you. So I would just close with this, church, number nine. Our, must, our message must continue, not if rejected, when it is rejected. When it is, you're going to be rejected if you preach long enough to enough people. You're gonna, it's, gonna be, it's not going to be received by everybody. Jesus said there's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. And everybody in the world's headed for the wide gate. And only few people will ever come through the narrow gate. Now, some of you, you won't share the gospel because you've shared it before and it got rejected. You shared with that person before and they, they said no. They hurt your feelings. They unfriended you. They, and so you're like, ah, I'm kind of good. Let the preacher do it. Let the, let the deacons do it. Friend, we all get rejected. There have, I know that there's been people who, who have, when I was a teacher at CCA, Maddie, I used to share the gospel with your class every day and every class, every day, every time. Because I've, I've just made that every chance I get. I'm sure I failed in that. But every chance I get, I'm going to at least share the gospel at some point. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He rose again. You can be forgiven of your sins if you'll trust in him. It doesn't take that long. It's not that complicated. Now, you have to explain. You have to connect to their needs. You have to make sure you're being understood. You have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. But it's not complicated. It will be rejected. Are you willing to keep sharing like Paul was? Are you willing to keep sharing? Because, listen, your job is not to save people, friend. I'm just the messenger. I don't save anybody. I tell you how you can be saved. And the Holy Spirit brings conviction. But every man, every woman makes their own choice. You can't make the decision for your kids. All you can do is provide a good choice for your kid. You cannot make a good choice for your kid. You can just provide it. The same is true of everyone. We can provide the truth. It's up to them to accept or reject, but it's up to us to preach it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel, and we thank you for the hope that it brings. But God, we also thank you for the commission that you have given to your church to take this gospel around the world, starting in our own Jerusalem, in our own Judea, in our own Samaria, and then to the othermost parts of the earth. So, Father, help us to be clear. Help us to follow the example that Paul has laid out for us by the Holy Spirit in how we present the gospel. But, Father, if there's somebody here today that has never received Jesus, I pray that right now they would come forward talk with one of our deacons, one of our deacon's wives, find out how they can know that they can know that they can know for sure from the word of God, your promise, your word, that they're forgiven of their sin and that they can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand as we sing this hymn together? If you have a need, the altar is open. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that Will pardon and cleanse.
we close. Father, thank you for the grace, the wonderful, amazing grace that you poured out for us when you sent your only begotten son to die for our sins in our place. God, while we were yet sinners, your son Jesus died for us. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We thank you, God, for your patience with us. And Father, we thank you for your patience with the world. God, we each here know people that maybe they're in our own family or our circle of friends, people we work with, go to school with who do not know you. God, I pray that you would give us a greater heart for the privilege of being your messenger, your ambassador, King Jesus. And God, may we be more and more faithful. God, give each and every child of God here today an opportunity, even this week, to share your love, to share your grace, to share the hope of Jesus with someone who needs, needs him. Because, Father, we're all either in Christ or in need of Christ. And so, God, give us opportunity this even this week, I pray. Father, we thank you for the hope. And as we look towards Thanksgiving, God, help us to, to list and be sincerely thankful, God. When we're discouraged, when we're down, to count the blessings that you have given to us, God, and to praise you for each and every one. And God, may we be witnesses who are thankful, full of thankfulness and hope as we witness to the world. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your gift. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, CCA seniors, for being here. Lord willing, we'll see you all tonight at 6.30. You are dismissed. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301 724 5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful.